You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer. On the line are my friends and co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. Hey, you guys. Aaron Lammer, who is on the show this week? Uh, This is like a uh, wish fulfillment episode for me and probably a lot of our listeners. Uh, Our guest is Maria Konnikova, who uh, normally writes for The New Yorker and various places. She has a new book out. That is about poker, which is a topic I enjoy. Uh, I enjoy both playing and reading about, actually. I think I might enjoy reading about it more. So the basic brief behind this story is that she took a leave from The New Yorker to go train with a poker pro to see if she could go from zero to 60 and learning the game. She knew very little about it and was so successful that she herself uh, started winning tournaments and found herself in a very different and uh, potentially more lucrative career as a professional poker player. So this book traces that whole story. I think it'll be pretty interesting for people who are interested in that kind of experiential journalism, and particularly when it can take a unexpected turn. Like I think she expected she'd get better at poker. I don't think she expected that she would have to make a career choice between writing and poker. It's such an incredible story. The book's called The Biggest Bluff. And as soon as I heard about it, I was just like, Aaron has to do this interview. You know what? I would read a newsletter about poker. Uh, Maybe you know about one. Let me know. If you yourself want to start a newsletter about any topic you're interested in, there is no better place to do it than MailChimp. Their support makes this show possible. Thanks to them. And now here's Aaron with Maria Konnikova. Welcome, Maria Konnikova. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. This is a weird, uh, it was a weird time to read uh, your book, which is about poker, because I've been playing a lot more poker than I normally do during the quarantine. I usually normally play no poker, but I've been playing some online Zoom poker. And uh, it definitely like uh, set off some kind of like emotional fireworks in my brain where I really wanted to play a lot more (laughs) poker. Do you think that your book will lead people to want to play poker? 
I honestly hope so because um, I was someone who didn't care at all about poker. And in the scope of a few years when I was researching this book, I just absolutely fell in love with the game, both as just a fascinating game, but also as a way of growing as a human being. It is one of the most complex decision-making experiences that I've ever had. And I have a PhD in decision in psychology, <laughs> in the psychology of decision-making. Um, so it was really mind-blowing to me because I had obviously expected that it would have some lessons for me. That's why I decided to do this book because I wanted to kind of explore the nature of luck, of skill, of chance, all of these different things. But I really wasn't prepared for just how much it would teach me and just how much it would translate to my thinking, my decision-making, my emotional regulation, actually a lot of things that I'm finding incredibly useful right now, my ability to deal with uncertainty, uh, my ability to understand statistical information, um, how much of that poker opened up. So I do hope that my book will actually prompt people who never really thought about it to look at poker in a new way and to say, Huh, you know, maybe this is something I'd actually enjoy. Because I do think that a lot of the general public, the people who aren't poker fans already, just dismiss it out of hand. They say, oh, I don't like gambling. I'm not going to like poker. Were you a game player as a youth? Like what, before poker, what was your game of choice? None. None. Um, so wow. that's the funny thing about this. Everyone assumes that if I didn't come to poker, from poker, you know, from knowing it my whole life, at least I'm a games player. And I actually grew up in a household where we didn't really play games. My parents don't really enjoy playing games. The few times I convinced my mom to play Monopoly with me, she would cheat because she didn't want to play. <laughs> and she'd do it in a very overt way because she just didn't take it seriously. And she wanted us to understand that, you know, it's a game, it's not serious. And so I actually just never played games growing up. I read, I don't even know if we had a deck of cards in the house, to be honest. I was enrolled in a chess club very briefly in, I think around fourth grade because I'm a Russian Jew. I was good. Okay. So the reason I assumed you played games is that I played chess in elementary school and, and junior high on the team. And basically the entire team was dominated by the children of Russian immigrants. <laughs> Pretty much running, running right. the whole game uh, for the like twelve-year-old championships. So, so I'm the exception to that. <laughs> I don't like, I don't like the expression, the exception that proves the rule. So, I'm not going to say that. Um, I think the rule stands. I think children of Soviet immigrants tend to be the best chess players, but I was not that. So, I went to a few meetings of the chess club, learned the moves. And then in my first ever game was beaten by a kindergartner who used the, I think it's called the kinder mate, the mate oh, yeah. three moves on me. And that was, that was it. I said, you know what? I just got beaten by a six-year-old and I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> what did your immigrant childhood sort of lead you towards a, as a career path? What did your parents think that you were should or, or would do with your life? Well, there was no should. Okay. Um, and for that, I am eternally grateful to them. I just got so insanely lucky. I mean, talk about luck, which is the main theme of, of the book. I think that the two things where I got just absolutely so ridiculously lucky is that 
my parents left the Soviet Union. That's number one, because who in the world knows what would have happened to me had we stayed there. You know, it was a different world, different opportunities. I mean, I would be a totally different person. And so, you know, I have nothing to do with that. I'm just internally grateful. And then their attitude has always been just remarkably supportive. They would say, you know, the reason we left Russia, the reason we left the Soviet Union is not so that you felt pressure to be you know, a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, it helps that my sister is already a doctor and an MD, PhD, so she kind of got that taken care of. So she, she checked all those boxes and like, all right, you can do whatever you want. But they said, we came here so that you could be you. Because in the Soviet Union, there were just so few options open to Jews. I mean, my, both of my parents are computer programmers. And while I think my dad loves it and would have probably been in a technical profession anyway, my mom has grown to love it and to enjoy it. But she, I think, would have been a humanities person had she been anywhere else. But the humanities were closed to Jews unless you were part of the KGB. Like that just was not an option. And so they always just said, you know, do what you want to do. Pursue your passion. That's why you're here. We can't give you money, but we can give you support. And that was just so incredibly, I think, empowering in ways that I didn't even realize until much, much later. And when I was little, I think when I was about six years old, five or six years old, I apparently announced at the dinner table that I was going to be a writer when I grew up. Um, So that's what I was hoping to do when I was very little. Then I went in a very different direction. I actually decided that I couldn't possibly be a writer after I started reading serious literature because I said, oh, my God, you know, all these books, they're so incredible. I'll never be able to write like this. I might as well just give up. And I fell in love with psychology and with the human mind. But then I really missed writing and I naturally came back to it in college. What path led you from the psychology PhD to publishing nonfiction? So in college, I studied both psychology and creative writing, and I actually studied fiction, not nonfiction. Um, So I graduated with a thesis and also with a fiction portfolio, and I knew I wanted to write. At that point, when I came back to writing my junior year and spent the next two years basically just writing, I realized that this is what I truly love to do. Unfortunately, you know, I didn't have any connections and I didn't know how that world worked at all. So I just was going to move to New York and try to make it work. But it's very difficult to move to New York and try to make it work with no money. And I became a bartender. I became a copywriter working for an ad agency. So there were lots and lots of things that I did straight out of college that didn't last. And I always knew that I wanted to write. The job that I was at for the longest, I was there for a little over two years, was a producer on the Charlie Rose show. We don't have to go into that, but it was, on the one hand, very kind of interesting in the sense that I was meeting all these people, getting all these great opportunities. On the other hand, it was just 24-7. It was all-consuming, and I couldn't write. And I said, you know, I need to leave. I can't stay in this environment anymore. And so I applied to grad school, and I was deciding between a PhD and an MFA. And just to be perfectly honest, I looked at it, and I thought, I have to pay to get an MFA, and a PhD program pays me. And it's a time to think. It's a time where I can have the freedom to do what I want to do. And another time when I got very, very lucky, 
I was accepted to Columbia and I wanted to work with Walter Michelle, who was this just absolute legend in the psychology world. And to be clear, I wanted a PhD specifically in psychology because I do think that writing and psychology are just so closely interlinked. I mean, the connections between the human mind and writing are, I mean, in some ways, it's the same thing. If you're a good writer, you have to be a good intuitive psychologist. You have to understand people, observe them, and really figure out what makes them tick. Especially when you look at the great fiction writers, they're all people who have a very strong grasp of human psychology, even if they're not experimental psychologists. So back to Walter Michel, I wanted to work with him. At this point, he was in his late 70s, and he wasn't taking grad students anymore. And Walter Michel, for people who aren't that familiar with psychology, you probably actually still know him as the marshmallow guy, the guy who did all of the marshmallow studies where you basically looked to see if a four or five-year-old kid would be able to wait for a marshmallow and the length of time that they were able to wait to eat this marshmallow and get another marshmallow correlated throughout their life with SAT scores, health, all sorts of things. And so I basically stalked Walter for a little while and told him, look, I really want to work with you. And I don't want to be a psychologist. I don't want to go into academia. I want to be a writer. And Walter somehow that spoke to him. He said, that's really interesting. And I applaud that. So he was also an artist. He had just the most incredible paintings. And he was from the school of thought that you have to have lots of different interests and that he really didn't like where academia had headed during his 50 years there because it had headed in a very specialized niche direction. So everyone had to just subspecialize. You had to spend 24-7 doing your stuff, publish or perish. Those were the key words. And so I told him, you know, I'm very self-directed. I'll design the research. I'll do all of that. I just really want you to mentor me. And we don't have to worry about publications. And so that worked out. And I think it was very lucky because I was able to use grad school as a time to start writing more seriously. So I was teaching. I was learning. um, I was getting intellectually stimulated by all of these fascinating people. And I was able to start writing. And so the transition kind of happened that way. And I ended up taking a semester off to write my first book and just got very lucky that it came out at a time where there was a big Sherlock Holmes boom. And my first book was about Sherlock Holmes. Um, And so it just enabled me to start writing full time when I graduated. By the time you were doing this, the kind of um, pop psychology bestseller was already thriving, right? We have like uh, The Tipping Point, Black Swan. I I understand that pop psychology is possibly like a dirty term here, but uh, in general, these kinds of books that built often on psychological studies, you saw people having success with those in the marketplace. Yes, absolutely. So that was starting to happen. You know, you had Malcolm Gladwell, you had Nassim Taleb. This was actually also when you still had Joan Allaire talk about dirty terms for (laughs) pop psychology. But yeah, and I actually, when I took my leave of absence to do the book, the book was very rushed into publication because it was the 125th anniversary of Sherlock Holmes. And so the publisher wanted to get it out for the anniversary. 
And it did well. Um, it hit the New York Times bestseller list. And I was like, this is great. I don't need to finish my PhD. I don't want, you know, I can, I'm free. <laughs> Hallelujah. And then um, my mom actually said, you're female, finish that PhD, get those three letters. And I was so grateful that she just pushed me to finish the PhD because it is something that can differentiate me. I say, well, yes, pop psych, but I actually have a PhD in psychology. I actually did this research. Um, this is actually based on my work. So I'm very grateful I finished ultimately. Tell me about your first forays in trying to turn what you were learning in a academic setting into uh, prose that's intended for a uh, non-psychology PhD audience? Like, wh what was it like trying to jump that chasm? I was trying to figure out how do I create an approach that's going to set me apart? Because I don't have a huge writing portfolio. Sure, I have my fiction, but it's not like I've been publishing pieces all this time. And so I actually decided that I was going to use my background in fiction in order to make that transition. And so I pitched Scientific American, a series of pieces that would basically relate different books, different fictional characters that would tie fiction to psychology. I said, you know, I'm a grad student here. And I wrote a few things on spec. And they said, oh, this is really interesting. Sure, we'd like to see a few more. And so I started writing these pieces. And they just incorporated both the books that I was reading at the moment and the books that had informed my thinking along the way. But I wrote a piece about one of W.H. Auden's poems. He's one of my favorite poets. I remember writing about Huckleberry Finn. I wrote about Dune. I had a column about Dune. Um, and these started doing really well. So they actually gave me a column and I called it Literally Psyched. And people seemed to really like them because it was very different from anything anyone else was doing. And I think that that's how I first started trying to find my voice. And that's actually where the first columns on Sherlock Holmes were published eventually that then became the book Mastermind. Yeah, you have, uh, I would say, a knack for coming up with book concepts that very quickly I'm kind of both interested in and I could see like a personal upside to reading. Was that something that, that comes naturally to you or something you sort of had to develop? Not just the, this is really interesting, but also like there's a, um, there's a prize in here for the reader kind of approach. You know, that's not actually something that I've ever consciously thought of. Mm. Um, instead, you know, my approach has always been to follow my interest. You know, if it's something that I'm interested in, if it's something that I'm passionate about, I've learned that I'll be able to write about it. And if not, I mean, you can just put a gun to my head and it's just not going to be a great piece. So I've sometimes taken assignments and written pieces and my heart's not in it. And you can tell they're actually some of my worst pieces. I'm guessing if I gave you, you know, 10 pieces and said, pick the two that I didn't want to write, you'd find them. Even though they're competently written, it's not like I was half-assing it. I tried my best. But the Sherlock Holmes came out of 
this very natural interest. I started rereading the stories and I just had this epiphany as I was rereading them. I said, oh my God, there are just so many psychological lessons in here. I want people to know them. I actually, because one of the things that I learned when I was studying psychology, and it's this is actually kind of funny. I didn't think of it until now because it's something similar to what happened when I was playing poker. When I started studying psychology on a deeper level, I just thought, oh my God, there's so much good here. I want the world to know it. I want to share it. I think this can make people's lives better, but I want to do it in a way where they're going to pay attention, where it's actually going to land in a way that, you know, if I say, hey, read this journal article, it's not going to. And so to me, Sherlock Holmes was a way of saying, hey, you know, this might speak to people and this might speak to people who wouldn't normally gravitate to psychology because that's also something that I've kind of kept in the back of my mind. How do I get this message to people who wouldn't otherwise be receptive to it, who wouldn't otherwise hear it? Because there are the people, you know, who they see, you know, Danny Kahneman has a book coming out, sign me up, right? That's going to be top of my list. They know who Kahneman is. Those aren't necessarily the people you want to reach. I mean, you want to reach them too, but I think you can reach them in a lot of different ways. You want to reach the people who say, who in the world is Kahneman? Like, who's the marshmallow guy? I don't know. In terms of following your interests in that way, particularly with some of the subjects you pick, you've written about um, confidence men and women. You've written now about poker. And once you open up those Pandora's boxes, the amount that can pour out is just massive. There's just an abundance in every way. There's thousands and thousands of amazing cons that have existed in human history. I would assume in, in psychology, just so many studies, so much data, so much to parse through. So when you have that abundance, both at the sort of anecdotal story level and at the here is scientific uh, psychological research that reflects on this study. How do you start winnowing that down into something that you're going to present to a reader? Before I write a single word of anything, it's be it a book, you know, be it a magazine piece, um, be it a short column. I do a lot of reading and by a lot of reading, I mean a lot of reading, like books, articles, just it's the way that I work. It's always been part of my process. And it's not work in the sense that I love to read. You know, if I could choose, you know, what do you want to do all day? I'll be like, give me books. I will spend the day reading. Thank you very much. This is wonderful. And part of what that does is that gets me kind of seeped in the literature, in the history, in the topic in a lot of different ways. And I think what my brain has always been good at, I don't think that this is a talent, it's just something that like, it's the way my brain works. I've always been good at picking out broad themes and kind of picking out big ideas out of things. That was always the way that I took notes in college and in high school. And so when I'm reading, what I'm really doing in a sense is picking out like, what are the big ideas? What are the big themes? What are the big things going on here? What unites all of these things? And so by the time that I start seeing those patterns, kind of seeing the big picture of what's going on, that's when I know that I'm ready to start writing. And at that point, I think, okay, well, what are the things that best kind of exemplify those themes that can best actually bring them forward. And that's why I actually don't use outlines. Um, so 
I just try to think, okay, what are the things that are going to communicate those themes the best? And usually I will know already because I'll have developed some sort of hierarchy in my brain. Um, And so it does, it's a lot of selection that happens beforehand and a lot of reading that the reader's never going to see. I mean, like for the confidence game, you say, you know, there are so many con stories and you're absolutely right. And I had hundreds of hours of interviews that I actually did that never got used. Like I spent more on transcription for that book than I thought it was possible to spend on transcription services because I needed to get this material to figure out what was going to make it into the book. And I felt really bad because a lot of them were just amazing stories, but I couldn't use them all. And so sometimes some really fun stories that just didn't really fit ended up on the cutting room floor. And I still hope, you know, I ended up doing a podcast after the book came out called The Grift, which had 10 stories that weren't in the book. So I was able to use some of the material that way. Oh, was that actually audio from interviews you did for the book? I hadn't actually even thought about that when I was listening to it. Yeah, some of it was. Some Ah. of it was. Some of it we retaped. So like I had audio that I had gotten from the book, but we the quality wasn't great or we, you know, it wasn't quite what we wanted and we retaped it. Interesting. Um, and then some was actually things that I did when I was researching the book that never made it in. And I did not realize um, just how much work it would take because it was, I decided to do a scripted podcast. So every, it was 10 episodes, each episode I wrote and each episode ended up being about 10,000 words. So I basically wrote a second book and when uh, we were talking about doing a second season, I said, just no way. <laughs> we're done. Hard pass. <laughs> this is over. <laughs> I really enjoyed doing a podcast, but it did not occur to me that a scripted podcast was actually going to basically take multiple months of full-time work. You talked a little bit about um, not outlining, and, and I'm curious how these books get structured. It seems like there's Generally, let's take the poker book as an example, kind of three major components. There's first person you stuff, and that's mostly Mm -hmm. you talking to your poker coach, you playing poker online and then in tournaments, going places. And Mm -hmm. then there's discussion of psychology and like actual like people who have studied it. And then there's poker lore and things to learn from poker and the history of poker and what poker really means and what games really mean. And going in, was that kind of the alchemy you knew would be producing a book or is it more random? (laughs) No, it was much more random. And especially actually the biggest bluff was really hard for me because I am not someone who normally writes in the first person. I mean, I you know, for the last you know five years of my career, I've been at the New Yorker and that kind of voice is just drummed out of you. You know, I'm a journalist, I'm an observer. I don't insert myself into the story unless absolutely necessary. And all of a sudden, here's this book that I've decided to write where I am the story. You know, I'm the center of it. It's memoristic. It's about me. Um, it's much more personal. And I was terrified. I was actually terrified until the moment that I got The first comments back from my editor, I didn't know if people would like my voice when it was just my voice and not my journalistic voice. And so I was really, really nervous because this was incredibly difficult and different for me. In terms of the overall structure, 
for the biggest bluff, that was actually the easiest in the sense that I just structured it chronologically. Once I figured out where I wanted to begin and where I wanted to end, it was simple to just do like every single chapter is a location and a month. And I actually learned this. It's funny. My first big lesson at The New Yorker, my first editor for the magazine was um, John Bennett, who's since retired. And I was doing this story. And I remember, you know, I went out and did all this reporting. And then I flew back to New York. And he said, before you start writing, I want to meet with you. And I remember sitting in his office and he was saying, okay, so just give me your thoughts on what you want to do with this, how you want to approach it. And I had all these great ideas. You know, I started talking. I'm like, you know, we're going to open here and then we're going to flash back and it's going to be this whole theme thing, blah, blah, blah. And he's listening and nodding. He, and he says, yes, or you could just do it chronologically. <laughs> and I just remember that sentence and I was like, oh, <laughs> And it was just such a profound writing lesson. He he said that's usually the easiest and the best way to structure something. And he was right. And it's something that I've come back to many, many times. Do it in the simplest way that works. So the overall structure of this book, you know, I, I had John Bennett's voice in my head, do it chronologically. But in terms of how it was going to work internally, I really didn't know. So this book took about three years and I basically just traveled with notebooks and I wrote a huge chunk of The Biggest Bluff by hand because I would be writing and taking notes everywhere I went. I have notebooks filled with writing and then I retyped everything. And as I was retyping, I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, it's the first part of the editing process. But then I had this bone structure of, okay, you know, I'm starting at this point in time, I'm ending in this point in time how do I fit everything together? And I didn't know how that was going to work until I actually started writing. And my final book looks nothing like the proposal that I submitted to my editor. And that's true, actually, of all three books. (laughs) Do you think that there would be so much first person in the final product if you hadn't turned out to be really good at poker? later in the book. Like, what have you been able to, if you were like, um, yep, I tried and I keep getting cleaned out. Would have that worked? Did you have to win tournaments and and win a significant amount of money for that to make it in? Right. Yeah. It's a really interesting question. And so when I sold the book, I'd already started working with Eric. I taken my first trip to Vegas and that's when I kind of wrote the proposal because I needed to figure out, you know, I want to make sure I don't hate poker. I want to make sure that this is actually going to work as a narrative, that poker really is a good metaphor for the types of things that I want to cover. Because at the end of the day, you know, this book is about poker, but it isn't about poker. You know, it's about luck. It's about all these bigger themes. So does this work? And so I wrote the proposal, but before, when I wrote the proposal, I hadn't won anything. I was still really bad at poker. I had just, you know, started my journey. It was, you know, I'm going to, do this for a year and we're going to just see what happens. And ultimately it doesn't matter if I do well or not, because what we're trying to figure out is, you know, can I learn to tell the difference between the things I can control, the things I can't control? Can I learn to improve my decision-making? And it would have been a very different story if I'd been horrible at poker and, you know, it ended up being like, you know, this is just, me trying this and being very bad. I think it still would have worked as a book because when I sold the book, the premise was we don't know, you know, that we're going to try to go on this journey. We have all of these reasons to believe that 
I won't suck, but we don't know. Maybe I will. And I had to be okay with that. And my editor had to be okay with that. I don't know the counterfactual because obviously, you know, something very different happened. I ended up being good at poker. I ended up, you know, winning an international title. I ended up going pro, being sponsored by poker stars. You know, I went in a direction that was very different from anything I could have anticipated. And so I don't know what the book would have been like in the counterfactual, but I think it still would have been first person because that was the premise that it was going to be this immersive project where I took this game as a way to learn more about my life, to kind of metabolize a lot of the things that had been going on in my life, to try to figure out, you know, how do you deal with bad luck? How do you learn to kind of deal with the things that you really can't control? Um, How do you learn to be okay with that? And in some ways, I think the book probably would have worked quite well, although it would have been a very, very different book if it had been a book about failure as well. If I could have derived some lessons from it, who knows, maybe I just would have gone broke and abandoned the project. That idea of sort of validating your hypothesis that not only are you interested in poker, but poker actually does like work in that kind of way. Is that something you do in your writing in general, like before you pitch a piece, do you kind of do this dry run where you uh, push into it a little bit to make sure you actually want to do it? Yes, absolutely. I learned that the hard way because I've pitched things in the past and people have said, oh, this is great. This was at the beginning of my career when I was really starting to do this full time. And then I started writing about it and realized this isn't at all what I thought it was and I'm not really interested in it. And I did it anyway. But so, yes, I learned the hard way that I think you really do need to do some preliminary work, especially if it's a book. So many times someone's like, oh, this is a great book idea. And then, you know, six months later, um, just bored to tears. And with a book, you're, you're going to be living with this for years. So you better make sure that you love it. It's funny, when I was still in the very, very early stages of what would become the biggest bluff, I didn't have a title. I didn't know it was going to be about poker. At the time, I just knew I wanted to write about luck. That's actually where this all started. I had no idea I was going to be writing about poker. I knew I was writing about luck. And so I was trying to figure out, well, how do I write about luck? And so I was reading a lot of things, talking to a lot of people, and I actually was researching a totally different topic at one point because someone has suggested daily fantasy sports. And I started researching it and I was like, oh, this is interesting. No one's written about it. This this is going to be like the next big thing. All this stuff. And it was the next big thing. Then I just, at some point, it just hit me. I was like, I don't care about daily fantasy sports <laughs> at all. This is boring. I don't like sports. Like, what am I doing? And, you know, I got lucky in the sense that it turned out that poker was, you know, a million times better than I ever imagined because I didn't know enough about it to to know all the ways that it was a good metaphor. But it, had I not done kind of that dry run, I never would have known. And it could have gone very wrong. <laughs> The the coach that you sign on is is a pretty big part of the book, and it's a pretty big part of the book working. I think like I, it seems unlikely to me that you would have gotten so good without that relationship, or that there would have been a voice that could explain what was going on as you progressed. 
how, like that's a big ask, right? Like, I don't know, uh, it's <laughs> yes. several times a week, I think you're, you're meeting yep. and it's not obviously someone who has like a strong financial need to be involved in something like this. Like, no. how do you bring a collaborator into a process like this? That, I mean, I, I think the biggest piece of luck I had in, in this book is choosing Eric Seidel and having him say yes. And the way that that happened was, you know, at the time I really didn't know anything about poker. And so I just kind of looked up lists of like lifetime earnings and all this stuff. And Eric Seidel at the time was number one in lifetime earnings. Right now, I think he's number three. These lists change all the time. But I also recognized the name because I'd seen Rounders, which was my only exposure to the world of poker. And Rounders is this movie with Matt Damon, where Matt Damon is a law student who plays poker and ends up you know, becoming a professional poker player. And he's inspired by this 1988 World Series of Poker main event final table where it's down to Johnny Chan, um, the champion, and Eric Seidel, who's this young kid, and it's his first major poker tournament. And so I knew the name and I knew that I wanted someone. So I didn't know anything about poker, but I do know something about kind of mentorship relationships and how that works. And I know that it's really important to have someone who can really speak to your strengths with whom you're on the same wavelength. It's important to fill up in your weaknesses, of course, but if you want to excel quickly, you need someone who's you know speaking the same language. And so I needed someone who had a more psychological approach. And all of the new poker players are much more mathematical. They use you know, solvers, models, all the statistical stuff. And I knew I couldn't beat them at their own games. So I needed someone who had kind of an older approach. So I didn't even consider any of the like really young players. I was looking at the ones who started a while ago. And Eric was actually the only one with that staying power, the only one who was still winning tournaments today. And also when I looked at him in videos, he seemed really nice. A lot of the people you see, you know, they go on temper tantrums. They are just very out there. And he never said a word. He was just like really quiet, really humble. And then I just cold reached out to him, you know, reached out to him on Twitter originally. And I had no idea that he lived in New York. I thought that he lived in Vegas, but basically just said, hey, I'm a New Yorker journalist um, working on a new project. I'd love to talk to you about it. And he wrote back and he said, hey, um, I'm actually in New York right now. If you wanted to meet in person, my jaw just kind of dropped. And I said, yes, absolutely. And so... I'd had, I'd had some practice convincing people who didn't want to work with me to work with me. I did that in grad school to get Walter Michelle to take me as a grad student. And so I tried to sell him on the fact that I wasn't like a poker player asking him for poker lessons, that I was just someone who was really interested in the game from a psychology perspective from a very different angle. And that just appealed to him. I think he's someone who really loves the game. He loves poker. He's passionate about it. And it appealed to him that I came from a general background, not from a poker background. And so I could potentially make more people care about the game. And he didn't agree to it right away, by the way. So he said, let's try this out. Let's see if we get along. Let's give it a test run for a few weeks. And it just so happened that we got along well and that we were on the same wavelength. And he said, okay, you know, let's give it a shot. 
But that was just the most generous thing in the world. I actually, I probably would have said no if I were him. I have no idea why he decided to let me tag along with him and introduce me to his whole family and just let me be an honorary Seidel for a few years. (laughs) As someone who had had the um, first person writing um, sort of kicked out of your arsenal based on, on working at The New Yorker, as you started to develop these first person parts of this book, there's actually kind of like a, a poker metaphor in this, actually, which is, you know, in poker, you kind of have to be willing to to uh, appear dumb at times or to not care about what people sort of think about what you're doing. And I assume that there could be moments where, well, this is the thing that I'd want to do personally, but this is the thing that I think would be better for the book. And maybe even a third thing, this is the thing that would be better for my poker career. How did your decision-making, I guess, shift around knowing that you were the star of a first-person book about poker? I tried not to have any preconceptions about what the book was going to look like and to basically take the experiences as they came. It helped that I didn't have an outline, that I didn't know, oh, these are going to be the beats of the story. This is going to be what I need to do for the book. What I will say is that being a journalist actually really helped me deal with a lot of the things that happened that weren't so nice. So when something, you know, as inevitably happens in any line of work, um, including media, but in the poker world, which is 97% male, you know, when you get into uncomfortable situations um, that you'd rather not be in, it really helped me that I knew I was writing about this because I could almost dissociate from myself and get out of the kind of uncomfortable situation and look at myself from the side and say, okay, this is really terrible and this is awful. And yes, this shouldn't be happening, but it's going to be a really good scene in the book. You can just remember it, write it down, you know, use it. You can use all of this. And it also helped me process things that weren't that bad, but that are bad in a poker sense, like horrible, bad beats, you know, and things that were just really awful, you know, where I should have won and ended up losing and lost a lot of money. There were moments like that where I said, well, you know, at least it's teaching me an important lesson for the book. So I always had kind of that hat on, which enabled me to process experiences in a twofold way, in the immediate emotional way of processing them, but also in kind of a more third person, okay, you're going to be writing about this. So anything is good. You know, if it's bad, it's good. It's good. It's good. We don't care. This is a scene. This is a story. This is good. And I think it also made me much more attentive because I knew I was writing about everything, um, which I actually think also made me learn much more quickly because I was really paying attention and writing everything down and just making sure I didn't forget, making sure I didn't miss anything. Because I also know from a lot of experience and a lot of experience gone wrong that you can't rely on your memory, that if you think, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to remember that you probably won't. And so I became very good at just constantly documenting everything. I'm also curious for you, you've, you know, you, you wrote this first book basically as a leave from your graduate program. This is your third book in about a decade. Um, as someone like me who who follows long form writing, I, I became a fan of your writing, and then um, you largely disappeared from the New Yorker's pages for a year or two at a time. Yep. I'm curious if you could re- reflect on that a little bit, like sort of the difference between 
publishing every month, every six week, publishing multiple things every year versus when you really burrow in. And this one sounds like it actually went longer than you expected. It did. It did go longer than I expected and took much longer. Luckily, I had you know very understanding editors who told me to take all the time I needed. But it is very different. It's different in a lot of ways. So, I mean, from a content standpoint, it's just very different when you get to live with a topic for three years because you're thinking about it really evolves. Your mind has the time to really go on a deeper level. And when you're on deadline, you know, that doesn't always happen because you have to, you know, sometimes I'll turn a piece in and it will be published and I'll think, oh God, you know, I wish I'd said this, you know, I've had this great insight with the book. You have time to reach those insights eventually because it's just percolating in your mind for so long. And so in that sense, I really love writing books because I really love just immersing myself in something and living it. Um, And in this particular case, literally living it. I've never done that before. Um, You know, when I wrote about con artists, I did not become a con artist. That's why I had to go on a full-time leave from The New Yorker. I've never done that before. I've always published at least something as I was working on my book. And this time I wrote just one piece, which was an obituary for Walter Michelle. So when he died, I, I wrote his obituary for The New Yorker. And ended up dedicating the book to him. But otherwise, I was on a leave of absence because I couldn't, my mind had to be 100% in poker because I had to learn it and I had to really kind of commit myself to it. And on the other hand, like there's something about both the personal satisfaction of finishing something and kind of seeing it out there and being like, okay, I did this, I put this into the world, it was important. There's something really satisfying about it. And it's easy to get lost when you're not putting something out all the time and say, oh, I'm just wasting my time. I'm not doing anything. I haven't published anything in months. What am I even doing? And I definitely had that feeling multiple times and said, you know, I wish I could, you know, just quickly go and write a piece. And then there's also just the gratification of knowing that people are reading you, that they remember your name. And a lot of people told me I was making a huge mistake. They said, you know, your byline's going away. Like, no one's going to remember who the hell you are in a year. And I said, well, I I guess that's a risk I have to take. But that's, you know, I definitely got that advice. People say, you know, they only remember last week's byline. And once your byline goes away, you know, no one's going to want to read your book. And I just, I didn't have the bandwidth to do both. And I think that the book is much better as a result, to be perfectly honest. At the same time your byline is going away, there's this other weird interaction happening, which is you're in an industry that is contracting mass layoffs and you're making months, if not years of salary at the table. What was that like? Like, How does the sort of differing economics of being a journalist versus a poker player and you're sort of being both at the same time. I'm curious what that experience was like and maybe what it led you to reflect on about choosing a uh, career that may not come with the largest paycheck. (laughs) What do you mean? Journalism (laughs) offers very, (laughs) very renewable. In case you haven't heard while you were on leave, (laughs) journalism's not going so well. Um, Yeah, you know, it was a little bit liberating because – it helped me see that there were lots of options out there that now I've developed this other skill set so that, that I can keep doing what I love, which is writing. You know, this is pretty cool. 
that I have kind of this alternate income stream. And so it frees me up to, you know, do some, maybe some more speculative stuff that I wouldn't have otherwise pitched to kind of not care so much about, you know, how much are you able to pay me per word? Um, How much am I going to be able to make with this? You know, which is always a consideration for me because I'm not wealthy and I've never, you know, I don't have family money and we, I don't have a much of a financial cushion in that sense. And New York ain't cheap. The envy I always have with poker players, because I'm friendly with a couple of people who are like semi-pro players is going on vacation and then ending up in a place where there's a casino and paying for your whole vacation. For me, that's the fantasy. It's not, I've been in enough poker rooms that I don't envy anyone, no matter how much money they're playing, if they're playing poker all the time for their whole life. But the yeah. idea that you could sort of infuse yourself with cash at any moment, that's that's a very seductive <laughs> uh, thing to have in your back pocket all the time. Yeah. It is seductive and it's not true um, <laughs> in the sense that that's the way that, so, you know, there's variance, right? So even if you're an amazing poker player, you're going to lose sometimes. So you have to be ready that you might have a multi-thousand dollar infusion, but you also might have a multi-thousand dollar loss. And so you need to, I think one of the things that poker teaches you is to really, if you're going to have staying power, if you're going to last in this game is variance and to just shrug it off and say, okay, that's fine. You know, today I lost. It's all good. Um, You can't think of it in those terms. And also, I think it helps me to enjoy it more. It's funny. Poker has been freeing for my writing, in a sense, because I know that I have this alternate skill set. On the other hand, my writing has been freeing for my poker because I think I don't have to play poker. You know, it's not like I'm stuck doing this and I have to just keep going no matter what. I can get up anytime I want because I don't think I'd ever want to be playing poker full-time because while I love the game, there are also a lot of other things I love. Maria, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Maria for doing this interview remotely. Uh, Thank you very much to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to our intern, Julianne Parker. We're brought to you by the generous support of people like MailChimp. Thanks to them. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.